All right. We are going to look at Scripture tonight, so you need a Bible close by. And uh, if you like to follow along on the notes, there's some in the front and some in the back. We've talked about this before uh, in church, and we've even talked about it on Wednesday nights in particular. But in the United States, superhero movies are big business. Uh, Americans love to go watch movies about superheroes. And over the last 10 years or so, uh, there's two different brands of comics that have really made an incredible amount of money. One is DC Comics, owned by Warner Brothers. And the other is Marvel, owned by 20th Century Fox. Marvel's had more success. Uh, The critics like them better. Uh, They've made more money. There's been a total of 17 movies in what they call the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And they have brought in a whopping $13 billion. And so it's just a remarkable thing to think that the standard or the definition of success for a new superhero movie, a new comic movie, is if you make a billion dollars. A billion is good. Anything under a billion is not very good. It's a little bit disappointing. And over the last several years, they've made individual movies for most of the major Marvel comic superheroes. They've had their own movies, and the new thing is to combine characters and throw as many of these comic characters into one movie as you can, and all of these different worlds are crossing over. And uh, it's a little bit odd when you just stop and think about us as a culture and our fascination with superheroes, that we're just so interested in make-believe, in people who have magical powers, or people who had scientific tests done on them and mutated them into someone that now has supernatural powers. It's just a strange thing. And sometimes I forget how strange it is because I like these movies. I enjoy them. And sometimes I just need my wife to look at me and roll her eyes and say, really? We're going to watch this movie? This totally make-believe, imaginary, pretend, not real at all movie? And, you know, bring me back to reality. But I think there's good reasons that we like these movies. And I'll just throw a couple at you. I think one reason we like them is that they are stories of rescue. They're stories where someone is in danger, they need to be rescued, they can't do it themselves, and they need someone outside of themselves to sort of swoop in and save them. And as I describe that, I hope your wheels are turning and you're thinking, well, that's kind of like the Bible. That's kind of like our story. We have a problem. We need to be rescued. We can't do it ourselves, and we need someone otherworldly, if you will, to come in and save us. And so I think one reason we like these movies and these stories is they sort of resonate with the story of the gospel. I think there's an otherworldly aspect to these stories that sort of fascinates us. Sometimes life can feel very boring when you just go through the routine of work or school or family or making dinner or doing the dishes, and to sort of escape that for a moment and to think about something that is otherworldly and completely different than your day-to-day experience or your day-to-day existence, I think is exciting for us. And again, I hope you see the parallel there. I hope you think, well, that's kind of why we sing about heaven. 
That's kind of why we talk about eternity. That's kind of why we read these stories of Jesus and the Gospels and all of the amazing things he did. And those stories resonate with us and there's an excitement. Or we read through the book of Exodus and we say the book of Exodus is one of the most exciting books in the Bible because there's all these otherworldly events sort of breaking into Egypt that are exciting for, for most of us. And so when you look at the scriptures, if you were going to pick a true superhero... Somebody who does otherworldly things. Obviously, Jesus is a great candidate. Obviously, Moses is a great candidate. And we are going to talk about Moses next week. But Elijah is a pretty good candidate. And if you're fascinated with people who can do superhero-type things, here's just a few things that Elijah did. One, he controlled the weather. And there's a painting here of the drought in Israel. And it took me a while when I looked at this to find Elijah. He's sitting down on the ground and he's praying underneath the tree and this is when Elijah prayed and it stopped raining just no rain until he prayed again and it rained so he could control the weather there's a comic character who can do that Elijah could do it Elijah couldn't do it but you know what I'm saying he could create food and there's a story uh, where he moves in with this widow we're going to talk about that just briefly tonight and there's a miraculous provision of food where they live longer than they should have been able to live. Uh, He was able to raise the dead. This widow had a son who passed away, and they called Elijah, and he came, and he raised this young boy from the dead. You all remember the story where he called down fire from heaven. That's a pretty dramatic scene, and there's all sorts of interesting artistic depictions about what that might have looked like. I have the feeling they all fall way short of what it actually looked like to be there and to see it happen. But he called down fire from heaven. And then for a grand finale, if that's not superhero-ish enough, on his way out, he rode a flaming chariot pulled by flaming horses in the middle of a tornado and went straight to heaven. That's a pretty good way to go out, don't you think? I hear people talk from time to time, well, I want to die in my sleep. Or, well, I don't, I don't want to die this way. Or this would be the worst way to die. I don't know how you top that. That's like the manliest way to leave the earth possible. Say, I'm going to ride a, a flaming chariot, horses on fire, in a tornado, and I'm just going straight to heaven. I'm not even going to die. So pretty impressive as a character, as a, a quote-unquote superhero. But then right in the middle of his story, we're going to focus on this tonight because we're familiar with the other stuff. We remember the miracles. We remember the the showdown with the prophets of Baal and all that great stuff. Right in the middle, there's a very human side to Elijah that comes out. A side that when you come to it, you almost think, "This, this can't be the same guy. This has got to be another guy named Elijah whose story just happens to fall here because it seems so out of character. He was a very flawed hero. And I put a quote on your notes. This is from a guy named Paul House, Bible scholar. And I'll just read the quote to begin. He says, a new character enters the story at this point. And he's talking about in the book of 1 Kings when Elijah shows up. A new character enters the story at this point to challenge the spread of Baalism. This individual is not just a prophet, but as time passed, he came to be considered the great prophet. A man who stands as the pattern for other prophets. This man named Elijah appears on the scene without being announced. He prays for a drought that will demonstrate Yahweh's power over Baal, receives divine sustenance, performs miracles. 
the drought ends only after he wins a telling victory over the prophets of Baal, a victory that should yet does not eradicate Baalism in Israel. Despite his prowess, however, Elijah is a very human figure. He can be afraid and he can become discouraged. Elijah is no Superman. Two extraordinary characters oppose Elijah in these accounts, King Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And I skipped a little bit to jump ahead. He says, by the time Elijah is miraculously transported to heaven, Ahab has already been killed. Jezebel will will survive another eight years or so, only to be put to death by the avenging reformer Jehu. The contrast between the deaths of Elijah and his enemies could hardly be any more stark. Elijah, the faithful servant of God, ascends to heaven. Ahab and Jezebel, the sworn enemies of Yahwism and the prophets, die at the hands of their foes. God's word continues unchecked while the wicked receive the consequences of their actions. Baalism will not prevail ultimately. And that comes from a guy named Paul House. So let's jump in and talk about the Old Testament context. I've given you this timeline each and every week. We'll give it to you again. We'll put it up on the screen. Elijah comes in the period that we would call the division. So this is after all the creation, the fall, the flood, the patriarchs, all those early stories in the book of Genesis are past. Everything in the Exodus is already past. God gave his people the law. He brought them into the promised land through Joshua uh, or at Joshua's leadership in the conquest. There's this strange period of the judges that we've talked about already uh, where there's really sort of a a vacuum of, of godly leadership or you could say a vacuum of any kind of leadership. And then comes the monarchy. And it's first established under Saul, and then the throne passes to David, and then it passes to Solomon. And then after Solomon, we'll talk about this in a minute, the kingdom divides in half. It's just split into two. Jeroboam takes part, Rehoboam takes the other part, and that's where Elijah falls into this story. And so let's just put the, put the yeah, those are the verses we're going to look at. Put the next one up for me. Let's jump ahead. I know the names are small. And I don't intend for you to be able to read them. You can find this picture online really easy if you just Google uh, kings of Israel and Judah. This will come up. Up at the top you see Saul, and then we go to David, and then we go to Solomon. All those guys are in blue. Those are the first kings. Everything's united under their leadership. Then we come down and we split to Jeroboam and Rehoboam. And we'll put a circle around those two guys that sort of go sideways. So you see, this is where we split. Jeroboam takes the northern kingdom of Israel. And so all those names in the pink on the left are kings of Israel. Rehoboam takes the kingdom of Judah. He falls under David's line. And all those names on the right, the green names, are all the different kings of Judah. Judah hangs on a little bit longer, so there's a few kings at the end when Israel's already been taken into exile. But you get down a little bit lower and you can see where Ahab is. Ahab is the seventh king of Israel. The seventh king. All of the kings of Israel are wicked. They all follow in the pattern of Jeroboam the first, who sets these idols up for the people to worship. And Ahab comes as number seven in that line. So just on your notes, let's look at these uh, verses or reference them. First Kings 11, we won't read that. That's the story of Solomon. Everything's going great. Uh, I think in a couple of weeks, Corey's going to teach on Solomon. So he'll tell us how great things were. And then eventually they just totally go off the tracks. Everything just goes off the deep end. 
and his heir is a guy named Rehoboam. Rehoboam wants to be a tough guy. This is now in 1 Kings 12 on your notes. Rehoboam takes the throne, and instead of listening to the wise men in the kingdom, he listens to his buddies, and his buddies say, look, your dad was great, but you're the new guy on the block, and you got to get your bluff in and show everybody how tough you are. So he tries to show everyone how tough he is. He tries to get his bluff in, and what it results in is almost a civil war. Because most of the kingdom says, no way, Jose, we're not following you. We don't want anything to do with you. And they're actually about to fight until the Lord intervenes and says, no, 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 we're not going to have civil war at this point. You guys go your way, and Jeroboam will get to hang on, or excuse me, Rehoboam will get to hang on to Judah. So civil war is averted, and uh, one of the first things they do in Israel is they say, look, if we're going to be our own nation... We can't be traveling to another nation to go worship at the temple. We're our own nation. We're not going down to Jerusalem, into their kingdom, taking our money and our sacrifices that will benefit their economy and their priests. We're going to set up our own deal. And right out of the gate, Jeroboam sets up idols. And he says, look, this is great. You don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem anymore. You can worship right here in the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, what I want you to look at is 1 Kings 16, and I want you to read with me this description of Ahab. Ahab was the king when we meet Elijah. So this sort of helps you set the context of what was going on. 1 Kings 16, starting in verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah. Asa was a good king, but not a perfect king. The 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, that's in the southern kingdom, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. That's the northern kingdom. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, and you say, what are the sins of Jeroboam? Well, it's idolatry. He's the guy that set up the idols in the northern kingdom and said, you don't have to go to Jerusalem. Worship the Lord here. Worship your gods here in the form of these idols. So as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria, and Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And then there's this interesting verse, verse 34. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. In my Bible reading, I just happened to read that passage this morning, Joshua 6, where they take the city of Jericho and they conquer it, and Joshua basically puts a curse on this city. If anyone rebuilds this city, it's going to cost you. 
And that detail is thrown in here during the days of Ahab just so you know how bad things were, how wicked things were, how immoral things were, that people had no fear of God. You've gone all of these years and no one's tried to rebuild this city. But in the days of Ahab, things are so bad under his wicked leadership that somebody has the gall, you could say, to defy this curse or try to defy this curse that Joshua placed on this city and he's not able to do it. It cost him. Now, I don't know what you think when you read this description of Ahab. I don't think any of us want to be described as the worst that there, the worst that there ever was. Like, whatever it is that you do. If you're a pastor, you don't want to resign or leave, and then people say, oh, he was worse than all the ones before him, that guy. Or if you, you know, work out in the oil field, or you, whatever you do, you work uh, teaching kids or something, you don't want to come to the end of that time and everyone look back and say, oh, what a relief that that person's gone. They were the worst. I mean, we've had some bad teachers, but that was the worst teacher we've ever had. That was the worst oil-filled hand we've ever had. That was the worst landman we've ever had. That guy was terrible. And that's the description that you get of Ahab when they look back on his life. They say, up to this point... He was the worst. He was worse than everyone else that came before him. He did more to provoke the Lord to anger than any of the other guys that preceded him. You read that and you say, that's what life was like when Elijah comes on the scene. People were looking around, godly people, the few that were still around, saying, this is the worst it's ever been. Have you ever thought that? about the time and the place you live? Have you ever looked around, heard a news story, seen some new development, experienced something, and thought, how did we get here? How could it get worse? This is the worst that it's I ever remember it being. And maybe you look back in in your life and time and you say, it wasn't that bad back then. It's so much worse now. That experience that you have had and I have had is the exact same experience that some people had in the days of Elijah. They looked around under Ahab's leadership and they said, it's the worst it's ever been. How could it ever get worse than this? We can't look back and see a day that was worse. This is the worst that it's ever been. So it's interesting to think that maybe there's some parallels to what Elijah experienced in his day and what we experience in our day. So let's talk about his life story. We'll break it down into a couple of stages. Number one, we'll talk about his origins. And there's really just one verse to read. 1 Kings 17.1. It says, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. And he just jumps in and all of a sudden this guy's talking. We don't know anything about his family. We just know that he was a Tishbite and he lived in Gilead. And so I'll put a map up on the screen And uh, these are sort of color-coded the 12 tribes of Israel as they settled in the Promised Land. Down at the bottom, you can see the Dead Sea, and you can follow the Jordan River right up through the middle between the yellow and the purple, and you can go up to the Sea of Galilee. And right here in this red circle is Gilead. It's on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and all we know is that that's the area that he came from. Uh, several of the tribes had settled over on that side. You can read about that in Joshua. One thing we know about Elijah is what his name means. And it's a pretty good name if you're a, a God-fearing Jew. His name means God is Yahweh. It's basically taking the name Elohim 
and Yahweh and mashing them into one name. And so we call him, in English, Elijah. It means God is Yahweh. So you can take that and you can at least maybe assume something about his parents, something about their faith. What did they believe? Well, they didn't believe Asherah was God or they would have named him something else. They didn't believe Baal was God or they would have named him something else. They believed that God was Yahweh, the Lord. So that's his origins. Next comes, we'll call it the drought. Drought. And we're using the word drought just to cover a large stretch of time where some really remarkable things happen in his life. Uh, it begins, we're not going to read all of this. You can look at it in 1 Kings 17 and 18. begins with a drought. Ahab says it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain until I say it's going to rain. And it doesn't rain. There's a story in here where he's fed by ravens, which is a pretty neat story. Uh, there's a story where he lives with a widow. And during this time, he's living with this widow lady. He's up in Sidon. And so we'll put our map back up. And you remember where we saw Gilead was. Next time we see him, he's way up north. And I, I put the circle up at the very top. Just bump it up a little bit further if you want to go to Sidon, if you want to go to where this widow was. Uh, he lives with this widow and his son. They eat. God provides for them. It's a miraculous provision. The son dies, and Elijah raises him to life. And then the next time we meet Elijah, he's at Mount Carmel. And so we can put another map up, and we'll move the circle again over here to the coast. There's Mount Carmel. He's at Mount Carmel, and it's this famous uh, contest, this famous showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. And there's 450 prophets of Baal, and there's 400 prophets of Asherah, and they have the back and forth. And uh, you've read the story. You remember the story. It's in 1 Kings 18. They cut themselves. They dance. They make noise. They try to do everything they can do to get their god or their gods to call down fire, and nothing happens. And you read this haunting verse that says, no one pays attention. No one listened. There was no one there to he hear or to see all the things that they were doing. And it's a, a striking parallel where you say, these worshipers of Baal and Asherah, they could see their idols, but the idols couldn't see them. They could reach out and touch their idols, but there was really no one there to listen. And you see the contrast with Elijah who worships the Lord, whose spirit and you can't see him. You can't box him in. You can't pinpoint him anywhere. But he hears. And he sees everything that's going on. The idols see nothing, but the Lord sees and he hears and he sends this fire down. And then we sort of leave this out of most of our discussions about Elijah. We certainly leave it out when we're teaching down in the preschool end, maybe for good reason. But he rounds up all those prophets and he executes them all. He slaughters them all. And I always read that part of the story and I wondered, how did he do that? How does one guy round up all those people and put them all to death? And there's really not a whole lot of detail in there to explain that. But he rounds these prophets up and he puts them all to death. And then it rains after three years and about six months. He prays at the end of chapter 18 and it rains again. All of that we'll just call the drought. Okay. Next is a stage of his life that we'll call refugee. And this is what I want us to read. Elijah the refugee. Look at 1 Kings 19. We're going to read a couple of paragraphs here. 1 Kings 19. 
Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Remember, this is the guy who just stared down the prophets of Baal in a contest and called fire from heaven. This is the guy who, after the contest was won, rounded up 850 people and put them to death. Jezebel makes this threat, and in verse 3 it says, Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life. And he came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness, and he came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked, this is a guy who prays, and it happens. He prays that it would stop raining, and it stops raining. He prays that fire would fall out of heaven, and it falls out of heaven. He sits under this broom tree, and he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now. O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. He looked, behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose, he ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights. There's something to add to our superhero list. To Horeb, the mountain of God. There he came to a cave and he lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. Everything up to that point's true, right? I've defended your glory, and the people have not. The people are wicked. Then he says this, Even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, this is the Lord speaking to Elijah, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore the mountains. Literally, it's a a whirlwind, or you could say a tornado. Tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire, the sound of a low whisper. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? Just draw a circle from the end of verse 13 back up to the end of verse 9. It's the exact same question. And if you're paying attention, you realize he's about to give the exact same answer. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazel 
to be king over Syria, and Jehu the son of Nimshi you shall anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat of Ebel Mehalah you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000, we'll come back to this, 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So this is a strange story. Jezebel, after this amazing moment, basically sends a message that says, I'm going to kill you. To the guy who calls down fire from heaven and controls the weather, the guy who slaughtered 850 prophets, false prophets, she says, I'm going to get you, and he has a total meltdown. Just a complete, you call it, I don't know, a nervous breakdown, or a bad day, or a panic attack, or he was hangry, or I don't know what you want to say. Like, you pick the description, just spiritually he was worn out, he just... He, he's terrified. He's terrified and afraid, and he actually sits down and asks God to kill him. Just end it. Let it be all. God sends him to this mountain. When God says to him in verse 9, what are you doing here? You almost expect Elijah to say, well, you sent me here. That's what happened, right? The Lord sent him there. You told me to come here, so I came here. But he doesn't say that. Instead, he launches into this thing that sounds really spiritual on the front end, but then on the back end, you realize it's really very Elijah-focused. He starts off with, I'm very jealous for your name. Everybody else is not. True. But then you realize how self-centered this man actually is, and he says, I'm the only, only, only one left. And so there's this interesting story where this wind passes by. And the text says God was not in the wind. And then there's an earthquake that breaks the rocks apart. The same rocks that were just broken by the wind. Doubly broken rocks. And it says God was not in the earthquake. And then there's this fire. Remember the last time we saw fire it was falling down out of heaven. And it was burning up this altar and everything around it. And licking up all the water and the sacrifice. And it just totally pulverized everything there. So you imagine that kind of fire somehow falling down. As he's in this cave and it says, but God was not in the fire. And then as he stands there, there's this small, low whisper. I think the problem with Elijah is that he had come to sort of like his superhero powers. Raising people from the dead when there was a problem. Multiplying food when there was a problem calling down fire and blowing these people up. Somehow he's able to wrangle up 850 prophets and kill them, controlling the weather with his prayers. These are amazing things, right? And I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but my guess is that when Jezebel says, I'm going to get you, maybe he expected some kind of immediate something. Hailstones from heaven. Dragons from the ocean. Who knows what he expected to happen. Something big, something dramatic, something that would prove that God was on his side. And rather than trusting in God, I think he had grown to trust in the miraculous, in the spectacular. And so God gives him this little display and he says, look, you see, you see the whirlwind, you see the earthquake, and you see the fire, but I'm with you even if it's just a low whisper. 
Even if I don't go get Jezebel right this moment and you think I should, I'm still with you. Now, I'll be honest with you. I don't think Elijah got the message, at least here. I don't think he got it because when God asks him the first time, what are you doing? He goes through this thing and it ends with, I'm the only one, I'm the only one. And then God shows him all the stuff. And then he says, what are you doing here? It's almost like a chance to get the question right. And rather than get it right, he just rehearses the same thing again. And God's response is, well, I'm going to use you in spite of yourself. This is what I want you to go do. And he gives him marching orders. All that's under what we would call Elijah the refugee. Next, we'll say Elijah the prophet. Elijah the prophet. Several things happen here. I'm going to let you read them and look at them. He picks up an apprentice, and the apprentice's name is Elisha. And children and adults have been confused ever since on who did what and who came first and which one are you talking about. But Elijah has an apprentice called Elisha. And I'll just tell you something interesting. I don't really have an explanation for this. Elijah is mentioned almost 30 times in the New Testament. Elijah, almost 30 times. Elisha mentioned once, and just in passing. Really not even to make him important in any way, shape, or form. And the reason that's interesting is we have way more stories about Elisha than we do Elijah. There's not a whole lot about Elijah. We're covering pretty much all of it. There's some really neat stories about Elisha. He performs some really cool miracles and does some really neat things. And he's only mentioned once. And Elijah is mentioned almost 30 times. So you can take that for what it's worth. A couple other things in here. And as you think about Elijah the prophet, uh, you may remember the story of Ahab and Jezebel and a man named Naboth and his vineyard. That story happens in this section. You can go back and read that. Uh, there's a, a part of the story where he rebukes Ahab's son. Elijah rebukes Ahab's son, who's the next king. And then there's even a part where he sends a letter of rebuke to the king of Judah. So he doesn't travel down there, but he sends a letter and tells this guy how wicked he is. So all that under the prophet stage. Last we'll call the whirlwind, or if you prefer, the tornado. Or if you prefer, the fiery tornado. In 2 Kings 2, Elijah joins Enoch as the only person who does not experience death and is taken straight to heaven. And as we said, it's pretty spectacular. And between the two, if you had to pick, one day I was walking with God and then I was just in heaven. Or one day I was standing around and God sent a flaming chariot to pick me up and I rode a tornado out. The other one is certainly much more dramatic There's some interesting art uh, that depicts this, um, Elijah riding to heaven in this fiery tornado. I'll just put a couple of them up. You see, in most of these pictures, he's dropping his cloak to Elisha somewhere on the ground. It was part of the story in the Bible. So there's a couple of depictions of it. Uh, There's a, a couple of one much older depiction on the left and then on the right, um, a much more modern sort of abstract depiction of what that looked like. Then I'll put up two more just so you can look. Um, These are ancient sort of tapestries, uh, mosaics from different places. So there you go. Interesting to think about a guy riding a a flaming chariot on a tornado to heaven, but that's what he did, and that's the end of his life. So let's talk about negatives and positives, and then we'll talk about how he points to Jesus. Here's the negative. 
In the aftermath of a courageous victory, Elijah succumbed to fear and even despair. Fear and despair. He just had a meltdown. And we talked through that passage and what happened there, so we won't rehash that, but he just totally has a meltdown. Here's something sort of interesting. Take your Bible and flip over to Romans 11. Romans 11, and let's read verse 1 to 6. We're really jumping into the tail end of Romans, so we're, we're missing a lot of context, but this is what Paul says, Romans 11.1. 1, I ask then, has God rejected his people? And he's talking here about the, the, uh, the ethnic people of Israel. Has God rejected these people because so few of them are responding to Jesus as the Messiah? It almost looks like the Lord has cut these people off. Has God rejected his people? And Paul says, by no means. I myself am an Israelite. A descendant of Abraham, member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. This is just an interesting parallel where Paul is looking around and he's saying, it looks like, it looks like God has rejected his people. There's so few people of these Jewish people who are responding to to Jesus as the Messiah, it looks like he's rejected them. And he goes back and he says, no, 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 we've seen this before. In Elijah's day, it looked like, like God had rejected these people, forsaken these people, like none of these people were going to be saved. And God had 7,000 people set apart for his purpose. And he reminded Elijah, you're not the only one. And Paul, I think it's almost like Paul is preaching to himself. He's a Jew he believes that Jesus is the Messiah, and he looks around, and he's sort of saying, why aren't the rest of the Jews putting it all together? And he's saying, God has his people. God has his people that he's foreknown and that he's, he's chosen and that he's going to bring to salvation, just like he did in Elijah's day. And I think there's a parallel there for us to think through when we look around in our society and we feel like it's not... Churches aren't as full. There's not as many revivals. There's not as many people getting saved, and things aren't like they used to be, and it seems like everything's going in the wrong direction. To just sort of hit the pause button and to say, wait a minute, wait a minute. God's in control. God knows who his people are. God has a plan. It was bad in Elijah's day, and it was bad in Paul's day, and it's bad in our day. It's always been bad, but God has his people, and God knows what he's doing. So that ought to help us as we wrestle with fear in despair like Elijah did. Here's a positive, and it's a pretty good positive. Elijah is remembered as a courageous prayer warrior, and the rest of Scripture views him as the model prophet. There's a reason we love the story of Elijah at Mount Carmel. It's a fantastic story. It's, it's legendary courage that he puts on display. 
there's a reason that we like Elijah and we, we remember him for rebuking kings, for getting in the face of these monarchs who could have had his head on a platter and just telling them the truth about what God thought about their sin. You can read James 5, talks about Elijah and the power of his prayers. Let's end with how Elijah points us to Jesus. And these are kind of interesting. Elijah points us to Jesus in a way that's a little bit different than some of the other folks we've talked about and some of the other folks we are going to talk about. Two thoughts here. The Old Testament ends with a promise about Elijah and the coming of the Messiah. This promise was fulfilled by John the Baptist. And maybe if we could, before we look at these scriptures... Maybe Mark could go back and just put back up on the screen after you fill these blanks in. There's a promise about Elijah, coming of the Messiah, fulfilled by John the Baptist. Maybe we could go back and look at the timeline one last time. I think sometimes we get confused. When you pick up your Bible and you say, okay, I'm going to read about Elijah, and you turn all the way sort of to the left, and you wind up in 1 Kings, And then you sort of flip forward and you make your way to the New Testament and you say, okay, well, there's a lot of Old Testament before Elijah and there's a lot of Old Testament after Elijah. You may have in your brain that it was a long time after Elijah lived that Jesus came around. It really wasn't that long at all. In fact, most of biblical history, the vast majority of it has passed in the background and we're getting really close to the coming of the Messiah. And you can see that here. The bulk of that history is behind you. All that's left is a few more wicked kings. The people get sent out into exile. Then they come back and we're ready for the Messiah. So look with me how the Old Testament ends. Last book of the Old Testament, book of Malachi. If you can't find Malachi, find Matthew and go left. Two pages, one page. Malachi chapter 4. Malachi 4. And let's just read all of the last chapter of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings." You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, verse 5, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And that's the end of the Old Testament. The last thing you read is this promise that God is going to send Elijah. I'm going to send you Elijah. You think, okay, we had this guy Elijah, this crazy guy, and he wore uh, animal skins and a leather belt, and he lived out in the desert, and he did crazy things. God's going to send that guy back. And then you open the New Testament and you read about a guy living out in the desert, wearing camel skins and a leather belt, eating locusts, and talking like a crazy man. Like saying things that people thought were crazy. And the, the writers of the New Testament are describing his appearance to help you put the pieces together and say, this is him. 
This is the guy God promised to send. Right from the get-go in the Gospel of Luke, when the angel appears to Zechariah, he tells Zechariah, your son is going to preach and serve and minister in the spirit of Elijah. And people talk to Jesus and they say, tell us about John. Who, who is this guy? What, what do we make of this crazy guy out in the desert saying crazy things and eventually it got his head lopped off? What, what do we make of this? And Jesus says, if you can accept it, he's the Elijah to come. He's the one that God promised to send. He's the one that God sent to turn the hearts of the fathers, to turn people toward the Lord, to lead people to repentance, and that's exactly what John the Baptist preached. Let's look, uh, which, which of these verses do I want to look at? Let's look at Matthew 11. We'll just read a couple of these. Matthew 11, verse 13 and 14. Says all the prophets and the law prophesied until John the Baptist. We had all the law and all the prophets leading up to John the Baptist. And Jesus says, If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is just putting all the pieces together, saying, This is the one that God promised to send. It's not Elijah riding a chariot back out of heaven. But it's John the Baptist in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Look at Luke chapter 1. Luke 1. You see this promise that the Lord makes to Zechariah. Luke 1. We won't read all of this. If you look at verse 16 and 17, it says, He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Just like Malachi said, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Flip back and look at Mark 9. We'll look at one more here. Mark 9. Verse 12 and verse 13. People come to Jesus and they have a question. And the question is, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And now it is written the Son of Man. How it is written the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So all these passages point us together to understand John the Baptist is this fulfillment. That God is going to send Elijah and he's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. And then we'll end with this. Moses and Elijah appear at the transfiguration of Jesus and together they speak of Jesus' exodus. Is Exodus. Flip over to Luke chapter 9. Luke 9. We read Malachi 4, and the book ends, the Old Testament ends, saying, Remember Moses, remember the law, remember Elijah, God's going to send Elijah. And then we come to Luke 9, and this is what we read starting in verse 28. About eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. And he went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. And you circle that word departure, and maybe you just make a line, and out in the margin you write exodus, because that's the actual word that's used there. They spoke of his exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And the parallel back to Moses, you can read the rest of it. The parallel back to Moses ought to be pretty obvious. 
Moses led an exodus of God's people out of slavery into freedom. And now they gather together, Jesus and Moses and Elijah, and they're talking about Jesus' exodus. He's about to lead an exodus of God's people out of slavery to sin into freedom. You know, from time to time you hear people ask the question, if you could go back and have a conversation with anybody, who would you want to go back and have a conversation with? Maybe they ask the question a little bit differently. Maybe they say, if you could go back and be a fly on the wall in any room in history, what would you go back to? What conversation would you want to hear? What moment that sort of changed the course of history would you want to listen into? And you can come up with all sorts of good answers to that question, but I think one amazing place to be would be on the mountain of transfiguration when Jesus is there and all his glory revealed and Moses shows up and Elijah shows up and the three of them have a conversation about Jesus and about what's about to happen in Jerusalem and to listen to those guys talk about this exodus that Jesus was going to lead of his people. And just like Malachi promised, Elijah was sent, it was John the Baptist, and then he appears again with Jesus on this mountain, and he sees something that's truly miraculous, something that's truly otherworldly. He sees Jesus, the Son of God, in all his glory and all his splendor, and it points us straight to what Jesus was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. So that's Elijah. And his story is remarkable, and he leads us straight to Jesus when you read him in the context of the Old Testament. There's things in his story that we can relate to. I think if you and I are honest, we look at Elijah's life and we say, you know, I've had that same experience where one day you feel like you're very, very close to the Lord, walking with the Lord, and the next day you do something completely off the wall. You just breakdown you have a meltdown and he's certainly a relatable character in that sense and uh, as we read about Elijah he's like so many of these Old Testament saints there are things in his life that we can look back and say that's commendable and that's something that we can emulate and try to to put into practice in our lives and there's other things that we look at we say he was just a man he was just human he wasn't superhuman And he had sin and he had issues and hang-ups just like we do. And uh, he was not the hero that we were looking for, but he points us forward to that hero who's Jesus. So that's Elijah. Next week really is Moses, I promise. We're going to talk about Moses next week.